0: Hey, everybody. Mark Jeftovic here with my co-hosts, Jesse Hirsch and Charles Hugh Smith for another edition of the Access of Easy Salon. We are taping this on March 18th. This is salon number 40.
1: It's time for the Access of Easy podcast.
2: So, what should we talk about today
0: well two things on my two things of yours that that i i was looking at was jesse your your psychological reaction to one year of covid and um you know just taking a step (laughs) back and uh we can get into it now and get into it later and charles is your your article yesterday kind of floored me about how i mean i knew about m2 money supply was taking off like a rocket in fact i mentioned that in the the crypto capitalist manifesto but what what took me by surprise because i haven't really been tracking it is the collapse in money velocity and what that means i don't even know what it means i mean you talked about it a bit why it's very frightening because I think it adds a, a, another data point to my argument that when when fed coin becomes a thing, when the central bank digital currencies come out and when UBI becomes enshrined in policy, there's going to be expiry dates on your monthly stimmy. It'll be use it or lose it because it's they have to they're, they'll be targeting money velocity specifically.
2: And it's funny it's funny you frame that. Sorry, Charles. It's funny you frame that in that way because the Chinese government has issued their central bank currency. Yes. And, and they're doling it out as a kind of lottery uh, to encourage people to use it. But they haven't included an expiry, but that makes sense. That you know is certainly uh, a future functionality. If the government's already pushing this currency out as a means of adoption, there's got to be a limited time nature to it. Otherwise, they're going to miss it. And Mark, you sent me something uh, not too long ago about a kind of civil war is a hyperbolic exaggeration, but a conflict in the world of Ethereum between the leader of the personality cult and the miners who do all the computational heavy lifting. And I think that's very much relevant to what you described and something we should also discuss. Sorry, Charles. Go ahead.
1: No, no, that's, um, well, in the whole thing of currency, I will say that the climb system's money, um, you know, crypto uh, has a time element to it, like airline miles, for, just for this very reason, that instead of allowing capital to pile up and then be exploited by some elite, it, it disappears if you don't use it, so money velocities, and then that's what helps fuel the the system, right, is you, you got to spend it on goods and services, so somebody made those goods and services is going to benefit, right, so... <clears throat> we can talk about that later, but I, um, I, of course, I'm always interested in civil war slash conflict. Um, and, uh, and, and it, it's, it's actually a, a, a good topic for, um, a, an intro to Mark's new, uh, crypto investing newsletter. That's that, that that's in the works as well, because there's a lot of these complex issues that even people like me who, who are really interested in crypto, I'm very quickly, uh, out of my uh, element, you know, w- when the, the uh, issues become very technical or beyond what I've what I've learned so far, so I'm looking at Mark's newsletter as a means of of acquiring more knowledge, really, and then therefore that makes you know better investments. But even if you don't invest, the knowledge is beneficial. And then the one thing I want to touch on is I'd like to get your guys' point of view on this book I mentioned um, that I just read, and apparently it had come up in earlier shows, uh, Subprime Attention Crisis by Tim Huang, And um, it's about the idea that the whole revenue model of of, um, the uh, social media and search engines um, is actually uh, like a time bomb waiting to blow up. And then that would be the consequences of what would happen if advertisers realize that these ads don't work.
2: (laughs) Well, and and let's start there because I I really appreciated when you sent that uh, link around because it kind of sets me up for the usual trope or role that I play on this show, which is. Charles evokes dystopia, I point out that the dystopia is here and therefore, you know, our feared arrival, it's already come and gone. And, and that has been true when it comes to the idea that advertisers, um, even before the pandemic, although the pandemic has exacerbated this, they did come to the realization that, you know, uh, algorithmic programming advertising is is a fraud, that it doesn't work right now on the one hand you could take this to the extreme and there are still many important researchers pointing out today that cambridge analytica was a fraud right that cambridge analytica as a company that they never were able to provide proof that they could deliver on their claims that their whole uh premise that they could manipulate public opinion that they could shift people's perception that Cambridge Analytica itself was an example of this, of this bullshit, of this hyperbolic exaggeration. But advertisers have been in revolt feeling that Facebook doesn't really deliver on what it promises, that you know Google exaggerates uh, its numbers, that all of this kind of ad auction, this programmatic algorithmic auction, that it's all just horseshit. And while on the one hand that is technically true, Right. That I think the the advertising systems as we know it today are ineffective, are exaggerated, are, you know, arguably one big, uh, huge uh, uh, fraud. But does that matter is the ultimate question. Right. If the accuracy of these systems are suspect to do the advertisers care, I'm going to say that a preliminary answer to that is no. That, in fact, uh, these systems are good enough. They are far from accurate. They are far from perfect. But for the big companies, for the big spenders, if you throw enough money into these systems, they produce results. These aren't the results the advertisers desire, but they're better than nothing, right? And I've been really getting into the research around this in terms of uh, a work that came out about 10 years ago called The Long and the Short of It, And it was about uh, brand marketing versus uh, sales activation. And the idea that short-term marketing had a different effect than long-term marketing. And what was fascinating was with a lot of research, the more I got into this, the more I realized that no one agreed, that everyone had conflict and that nobody understands how contemporary advertising works and nobody cares because all the people who play the game are either gatekeepers like Facebook and Google who are charging money for you to play and they don't care if it works or big advertisers who have so much money that they also don't care if it works as long as nobody else is able to use it at the scale that they are and therefore they're fine. So it kind of feels to me and, and, and I'll shut up cause I've been a little long winded with this, like a dog chasing its tail. It knows it's its own tail. It knows that when it catches its tail, there's not much it can do with it, but dog God damn it, it's gonna keep doing it anyway, because it's a decent way to pass the time. And that's almost how I see the current state of advertising that everybody knows it's kind of broken, but it's better than any alternatives. So they're all still playing this game of uh, uh, musical chairs, hoping that the music doesn't stop, which as a metaphor, kind of fits the story of financialization that we keep talking about week after week. Mark,
0: what's uh what what was interesting about that segment was how it exemplified how despite all this sophisticated technology and air quotes around AI which this week I decided AI from henceforth now means uh, algorithmic imitation, not artificial intelligence. That's what I mean when I say AI from now on.
2: Unfortunately, yes. no one is going to know that other than us. But yeah. I agree. That's a fantastic distinction.
0: Yeah, us and the 15 people who watch the show.
2: But Hey, Mike.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hi, Mike. And so, um, you know, David Ogilvy, I think it was, said like in 1940 that of all ad spends are useless. We just don't know which 50%. So you were kind of stuck doing it. And then with, with the technology revolution, it was all supposed to be point to point data, point to data point. You can track everything. You'll measure everything and you know exactly what's going on. But here we are. The, the upshot of, of this book is that we still are spending maybe even more than 50% of our ad spend and we don't know which half is working and which half isn't because even before a lot of these social media platforms, I remember seeing studies that said the very large percentages of web traffic were all bots to begin with. So I find that interesting.
2: Charles? As a quick anecdote, I mean, the flip side to this, like we're talking about it from the advertiser's perspective. And if we assume, well, fuck the advertisers, what about the creators, right? What about the podcasters? What about the viewers? And that's also to Mark's point where you're left with the question, is it a bot or not? And I see this on Twitch all the time in which there are a lot of bots and creators are so desperate for an audience that just the way the advertiser is wondering, you know, wit of my 50% of my efforts, what are effective and what are not, creators often have the same questions of the effort that I'm putting in to write my newsletter, of the effort that I'm putting in to do my YouTube channel, of the effort I'm doing on whatever platform someone is on. They are wondering themselves, how many of these people who I'm performing for are bots? And why am I performing for a bot? The answer is advertising. And that is the fundamental corruption of social media and and why we're having this discussion here. Because it's when money becomes part of the metrics that all of a sudden the metrics become questionable. And the reason that advertisers are questioning the effectiveness is because of ad fraud and click fraud, right? The way that people will use bots to watch ads and click ads and try to defraud advertisers from the money that they're spending. And so it's a really wild ecosystem that, you know, fundamentally. It's not the basis by which to build a society. It's not the basis by which to build media. And yet advertising on the internet is the default business model. It's the default kind of social relation. And yet in itself is fraudulent, which again is one very weak foundation by which to build a digital society. Sorry, Charles.
1: No, I'm glad. I'm really glad that you um, described that social impact and the impact on creators because that was part of what um i think the author of that of this book subprime attention crisis he was saying if 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 people catch on that this advertising as you say social relations that, that, that are, that's the financial foundation of of you know social media and much of the web if it doesn't work what happens if it, if it declines well that's going to Impact a lot of creators as well. Oh, good. You got it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's on Um, the desk right there. (laughs) Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, and you're, you're also, you both of you mentioned the idea that this so called, you know, technological wonder um, of data mining and all this kind of stuff is actually um, deficient. And it, and then it, 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 I, of course, it, um, calls to mind Jesse's um, uh, foundational, one of your foundational, uh, you know, contextualizations, which is, um, you know, every new media um, in, in a way carries its own um, self-destruction, right? And so the, I think the, the book is, is asking these questions. Is there another social relation possible? That And this, as you say, it sort of defaulted because this was American capitalism. Like, how do we maximize profits by whatever means are available? And it's all like, well, hey, you know, we, and, and, and um, as the author mentioned, um, the <laughs> founders of Google, where he worked, in their initial 1980s, uh, I think it was 1998 paper on the algorithm that's the foundation of, of Google's search, in ranking, um, they 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 questioned what would happen if advertising became the sole foundation of this of this business, you know. And so, if it as it decays uh, from click fraud, as you said, and then also ad blockers, because apparently they lose you the advertisers lose about a third to ad blocking and about a third to click fraud. So, you know, at best they have a third of which half works. So they're actually down to a sixth. And to spend $300 and I agree with you, Jesse, they they don't see any option because what are you going to do? Advertise in um, another dying media? I mean, it's like, well, you know, but. Well, and,
2: and to your point, I think if we were to try to quantify, you know, whether it was a half, whether it was a sixth, I think it would be even less than that. Because, again, if we take the perspective of the advertiser, they're spending their ad buy across so many different platforms. And each of those platforms is then a, a gamble as to whether it's effective or not. So I, I would think that the aggregate of that would be even less than a sixth. Right? That it's, it's that's the point of the black box society. Garbage in, garbage out. And and you're you know, unless it's garbage which you seek, which for many people it is, then you're you're really not getting much of a return. And so interestingly enough, as a bit of a segue, but you know, uh, maybe not. I- I've been, a lot of people keep asking me about these NFTs, right? The non-fungible tokens. Yeah. And I did do a MetaViews issue where I tried to do a kind of overview or survey of what's going on. And, and part of the contradictions I pointed out, which I think we did mention here, is like the media reports on this with an automatic conversion. Like all these NFTs are priced in ether and yet the media reports them as if they're priced in U.S. dollars, when the whole point of this is that these are people fleeing the U.S. dollar, right? These are people who are fleeing the stock market, and they're using NFTs as a speculative store of value as an alternative to existing systems. And so comparing them to an existing system doesn't make sense. But then I read this fascinating Twitter thread, which just pointed out the entire value chain of an nft is not based on the work the artwork itself it's based on ethereum cuz if anything happened to ethereum the entire nft structure would be worthless and irredeemable because the whole point of an nft is that you have a little computer code that pr- that proves you own something but if something happens to the database that controls that computer code so that you can no longer prove that you own something. Well, then what you own is absolutely worthless. So these are all these people who think that they are speculating in art. When in fact they're speculating in some asshole named Vitalik Buterin as a governor, as the basis for all this fucking value. Which, okay, on the one end, you could take as proof of a bubble. But to me, it's that people have no concept as to who their rulers are, as to who makes decisions, as to what any of this is going on. Because this entire, every time I hear the word NFT, I hear the word Buterin, I hear the word Vitaly, I hear cult of personality, because that's what it is. And that's when people who are investing in this structure, that's the system that they're investing in. So, Mark, do you want to explain a little bit about what you sent me in terms of this conflict currently, or at least your uh, understanding of the conflict that is currently happening in the world of Ethereum?
0: Well, I want to explain a lot, actually. So, um, because I'm like, we hit on three distinct points. So, I don't want to leave the ad model behind without talking a little bit, and it ties into what we're talking about. So, okay. Brave as long browser. as you don't
2: forget, you take notes, right? No, I've got it. I
0: have the notes. So I'm going to go Brave Browser, NFTs, the Ethereum Civil War. Okay, that's the three data points we're going on. Brave Browser is a attempt at a different kind of an advertising ecosystem where end users get paid for viewing ads that they elect to see and they get paid in a basic attention token. And then content creators can be tipped or compensated for the content they're creating on their website by end users in basic attention token. It's the cryptocurrency uh, carrier tone of the Brave browser ecosystem. I've been watching this. I use the Brave browser and of course it has ad blockers built in it. But what's interesting about this is we're going to see now what happens when this great idea for an alternative ecosystem collides with financialization because this week, uh, Grayscale announced that they're introducing a they're introducing four or five new cryptocurrency trusts, including Basic Attention Token it will now be a Grayscale trust. It's like an ETF, but it's really a closed-end fund, and so the price of the Basic Attention Token. Jump has leapt 50% in seven days, less than seven days. So, Because the
2: infrastructure has expanded.
0: No, because Grayscale is launching an investment vehicle for BAT. So now BAT is no longer – well, it's still – I see. So you're
2: arguing it's empty because it's financialization.
0: I'm not saying it's empty because of financialization. I'm saying now we're going to see the effect of financialization on an otherwise – coherent ecosystem and 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 it could be like a little petri dish in real time so that's that nfts okay you guys know i'm like i love crypto and i'm a believer and i don't get nfts and i i really don't understand them and i was on a call last week with someone in the industry who's a rock star in the industry who said to me to be frank about it i don't understand them
2: either so I, I feel that in making those two statements, you're opening a relevant, an attractive, a tasty can of worms. Can you just <laughs> yeah. pause on that and jump uh, to the Victalic thing and then no. go back to NFTs?
0: No, because okay, I'll make this ahead. point quite quickly, okay? NFT. So you can look at NFTs and say, these are an overvalued speculative frenzy that makes no sense. You can believe that. And still not think that it invalidates the entire cryptocurrency space because that's what people are doing. They're saying, well, look at this, this NFT, NFTs are crazy. Therefore, cryptocurrency is crazy.
2: But you are fulfilling those people's intent by giving them airtime here because i would agree that their argument is ludicrous but they make that argument to entrap you in their straw person that they've constructed okay
0: well let me let ahead. me kill the, let me set the straw person on fire okay but that's their
2: point Be- anyway go ahead
0: so the other argument that you constantly hear about bitcoin and cryptocurrencies which makes me crazy is tulip mania because when you look at tulip mania you realize a it's profoundly misunderstood. When I researched it back in 2017, I realized that most of the data is circular, self-referential, and anecdotal. But be that as it may, I realized that tulip mania of the day was more like um, domain names. Remember when domain names would sell for $20 million, $60 million, $10 million just for an aftermarket domain name?
2: Again, and, this is why I wanted you to talk about Vitalik thing because you are were opening getting doors there. left, right, and We're seven. getting
0: there. Just, just stay with me. My point about it is I'm giving you a real-world example where last generation's NFTs, which were domain names because they were non-fungible. You couldn't just swap one domain name for another. Everyone was unique unto itself, just like a tulip back in tulip mania days, just like an NFT today. They went into a speculative bubble that made no sense, but DNS still powers the internet. It still makes everything tick, and everybody still needs a domain name. That's my entire point about NFTs, which brings us to Vitalik and the Ethereum civil war. (laughs) Thanks for staying with me this long. So that's all about Ethereum announced this over a year ago that they're moving from proof of work to proof of stake, which means there's no longer going to be Ethereum mining. You're not going to have data centers full of mining rigs chugging away, eating up power to mine Ethereum. You're going to stake collateral instead to uh, provide the, the infrastructure rails to the internet. And so now the miners, of course, because this is their incentive structure is being taken away from them now. So the miners are saying... We shouldn't have to go through with this. We shouldn't have to follow along. And it harkens back to the great Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin fork of 2017, which, as I think it through now, is is a possibility. I mean, we have Ethereum Classic already and then the the main Ethereum. And then now, if the miners decide we're not going along with this, we're going to have to fork off, make Ethereum Classic 2 or whatever, you know, true Ethereum um Vitalik's vision Ethereum whatever and then but I I think the way the wind is blowing in this world it's going to go with the proof of stake model and that's going to be the longest blockchain happening and um so
2: I mean again there's so much to respond there that my brain just short circuits and okay. even the last part I I because I didn't understand it, I want you to elaborate. But because I don't want to know, I also don't want you to elaborate. <laughs>
0: Should we um, let Charles talk then? or?
2: <laughs> but, but, but I have to, because I set this up by asking a question about this civil war, I have to respond so that I can reach some comprehension or understanding about this civil war. In that, while I think this is a great example of forking off, right? Where in the past we've argued, I've argued, that, you know, Forking isn't an accessible thing. Not anybody can go and fork. And yet this is a great example of how forking is politics, right? How miners have a lot of power. And in this case, the lead developer has a lot of power. So one of those two parties, when they threaten to split, when they threaten to fork, that is substantive. And as you noted, there's precedent for this, right? There's not only precedent for this in the Bitcoin community, but this has already happened in the Ethereum community. And the past instance in the Ethereum community, you know, was around the DAO, was around the Distributed Autonomous Organization, and basically, you know, uh, Vitaly coming in and making a change so that when someone found a flaw in the smart contract, that flaw would be fixed, even though the whole effing point of small contracts is to reward people for finding a flaw, Right. Which is, Mark, your whole point about let the market be what it is. If a company fails, it fails. If a company succeeds, it succeeds. And so this is why these instances really make me concerned about the governance model of a blockchain society. That it either comes down to demagogues or it comes down to industry, which in both cases, I'm not particularly comfortable with them making the decisions as to how the rest of society accumulates value or exercises that value. And, and and that's why I find this particular story so fascinating because it to me illustrates the hypocrisy of what a lot of these cryptocurrencies say versus the politics that actually manifests as, as a result of the real power in this case that miners have in contrast to the real power that this lead developers have. I agree roughly with your analogy between domains and NFTs. But I do, I I feel the fact that everyone, it's not that they don't understand NFTs because I think they are what they are. It's pretty obvious what they are. They're stores of value, just like an artwork is a store of value. And in a time of crisis, rich people want to move their value to places that they think others can't get. And that is part of the story of NFTs. But I digress. Charles, please. Can I
0: actually interrupt before we let Charles in, and then I'll, yeah. I'll bow out for the rest of the episode? <laughs> no, no, the um, the...
2: I, I you're challenging me now to say things. If I know you can't <laughs> respond to say things, then to see if I can provoke your response.
0: <laughs> the Dow hack, to put more specific specificity on it, it was a it was a heist, like millions upon millions of dollars. I don't of do agree. It was or... a
2: heist. It was a no. millions and millions of dollar flaw in the contract so anyway i just find it interesting that you would argue that given your position on markets
0: well because the dow had a stack of ether in it and someone drained the ether
2: because the contract allowed it
0: well anyhow can i make my point so my point is right this is the fatal flaw in the network purist idea of the network state that we're going to we're going to take human judgment out of everything and it's all going to be uh, governed by smart contracts and they don't really understand that that's actually a dystopian nightmare. But right? that's
2: my point. If you're Yeah, I know saying... we're, we're
0: not disagreeing
2: But if you're saying that if the only way a company can learn from its practices is by failing in the market, is by having the economic consequences of its strategic failure, then Ethereum has to face the effing consequences from their false philosophical worldview when someone else figures the flaw in the contract that allows them to drain all the money because there's no human there to go, hey, guys, we got a problem. Well, they have to
0: do one of two things. They either have to face that economic consequence, like you said, or they have to rethink their governance model. Right. And that's what right. I told them when I when I went and worked with the Ethereum name service group. And they I said, Look, you have to have a governance model. Yeah. And they even some of the people there said, Look, we realize now since the Dow hack, you have to have the big handbrake on the engine. You have yeah. to be able to throw a penalty flag in and say, and then Of course, the purists say, well, no, now you can have corrupt humans perverting the process. But the point is, we're humans living in a civilization and we're going to have to use judgment. There's no way around it. Yeah. Like, that's just the way it is.
2: And I think where we are agreeing, so we can turn it over to Charles, is that they are infants when it comes to thinking of their governance models. They're still so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, blinded by their transhumanist ideology, so blinded by their belief in robots as decision makers that they think they need a handbrake when instead what they need is a parliament, right? Yeah. What they need is is an actual governance structure, and that's why I think NFTs are doomed to fail because the entire philosophical structure that supports these stores of value is corrupt and insane. Well, I'll I just, digress, but I'll Charles, just push, please, I'll bail just push us out, back. every we'll time Mark says something, say, this, i got to respond to him.
0: It doesn't characterize <laughs> all of them, okay? All of I'm which? Big, uh, the whole Ethereum community, I don't believe all that agreed. they're all transhumanist people. There's brilliant
2: people in, people. 100%. Yeah. And to your anyway, point, Charles. if the Ethereum people came up with governance, genuine governance, they would be one of the leading candidates for the network state to take on China or for the network state to take on Facebook. These children underestimate their power, and that's why they don't have a governance model. If these little fucks would grow up and end their personality (laughs) cult and come with a real democratic governance model, they could take over the frickin' world. And I say it that way because history will see whether I'm right or not. Charles, bail us out here. (laughs) We're gonna get
0: canceled here by the. By anyway, who? Go ahead, Who Charles. could
2: cancel us, Mark? The Ethereum people? <laughs> yes. Wow, that would prove that they're hypocrites. Okay, go ahead. Please, Charles, Charles go on.
1: Save <laughs> us. This, is, this isn't a bailout. This is just like a, <laughs> this is just like a side, you know, a little, you know, country road Thank off you. the highway you guys have been paving. Okay. <laughs> I, of course, I can't help think of the climb system and in its in its dependence or reliance on a crypto that's not either proof of stake or or proof of work, actually. It's it's more like a really low-level database. And 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 why it would work um, without that without that kind of infrastructure is is number one, the money disappears fairly shortly and it vanishes. You know, I mean it's like airline miles. We don't need to keep track of the Airline miles I lost 20 years ago. I mean, they're gone. So it it (laughs) simplifies the system. And but they probably do have
2: your air travel from 20 years ago still.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they probably have a few bits on my total miles or whatever. But um, the um, my my point is too is that there's a scale issue here. And so in in my uh, sort of conception of the climb system, it's um, the money is created right. The crypto is created only when the labor has has created some useful value and that's been verified by a human being. And, and in the CLIMB system, the verification is is through a semi-random, not meaning semi-random means as random as we can make it, knowing that it's not perfectly random, where other CLIMB members would be recruited to go look at the job site or look at the daycare center or whatever the work that supposedly got done and just say, yeah, it's actually functioning or whatever. And so we're not going to rely totally on, on um, AI or computing or anything else. Um, so uh, there's that. And then, and then the money is created in such small increments that there's no giant pool of resources that are worth stealing. <laughs> and that's part of the Climb system's use of crypto is to, to decentralize it and, and bring it in on such a tiny scale that it's all like, well, wait a minute. There's almost nothing to steal here, you know. And so it's, there, there's no incentive. And that doesn't mean the system can't be broken. But what it does mean is when it does break, the breaks are on a very small scale and the system can adapt without, you know, losing the whole system integrity. So those are some ideas about what I have about the way crypto could work. And it's different than, than uh, Ethereum, smart contracts, well, Bitcoin, et cetera.
2: Yeah, because yeah, the big difference is you're wise enough to bring up a political structure to it you're wise enough to think that every configuration in the technology has a socio-political consequence right and that you know your example of limiting the cost of an error is is very prudent but it also recognizes that our relationship to labor is temporal it's based on time right it's not some infinite thing that we could like you can't generate more debt than your labor could actually produce or provide. And so I I think, you know, I was being facetious when I was sort of challenging or trying to provoke the Ethereum world. But there is truth to the idea that with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that's where my skepticism of, you know, all of the kind of blockchain and Bitcoin related hype is that it evokes these great powers. It evokes these great possibilities but it doesn't tell me what they're going to do about the responsibility that comes with that great power. Cause that's what I hate about Facebook, right? Facebook was this, this jerk in a dorm room and at Ivy league school, you know, bragging about his power. He is still that jerk today. And at no point in his journey has he ever thought maybe there should be accountability to this power. You know, maybe there should be responsibilities that come with this power. And, and that's why Facebook is such a terror. That's why, Facebook, you know, is this kind of unstoppable machine because there are there are no checks, there are no balances on it. And you know, I would argue that that's bad for Facebook as it is for society, but obviously I don't care about Facebook. And I think that's why concern about to bring it back to government the difference between a cryptocurrency that is optional and a central bank digital currency that's mandatory. Right. Because that's the real difference that if Bitcoin is this experiment out in the Internet that we can choose to ignore, well, fine, who cares? That's cool. But when it all of a sudden becomes something that the state mandates that you adopt for purposes of surveillance, for purposes of tracking, for purposes of all, you know, the, the benefits that it affords a centralized power, you know, th- that's where we, we should be like, hey, why were we not raising concerns about this earlier? Right. Why were we not uh, saying, hey, maybe a minute, maybe paying with good old analog cash is good enough. Thank you very much. You know, or to Charles's point, maybe we could have a system that prioritizes privacy. Right. Or that prioritizes uh, uh, multiple identities and pseudonymity or, you know, whatever the context may be. And and that's part of why we're here in terms of the access of easy, that the point of podcasts, the point of this media is to raise these conversations with people. But that's also why my trope is always, yeah, but this is already happening, cuz I wish that we were as a society having these conversations earlier and faster.
0: <laughs> Charles, we're going to have to figure out and not on this show today, but <laughs> if um if if climb is going to have a decay, like you use it or lose it, how will people form savings and capital if they want to consume less than they uh, earn. They're like well, Because what I always in my mind thought it shouldn't be convertible into other cryptocurrencies in any sort of exchange fashion, because that's going to just make it gameable somehow. And, um, but sorry, go ahead.
2: And I want to hear Charles's answer, but l- yeah, let me after down, Charles' so. answers... Mm-hmm. Uh to try to tie your question back to the attention tokens. Yeah. Okay. Because I was part of the reason I was getting frustrated with your earlier points was I really want to talk about the attention token stuff. But the Ethereum stuff, because it's foundational, was, was you know, obviously where the attention had to be. So I'm I'm interrupting here to say Charles, I want to hear about the savings and accumulation of uh of value in climb. But then I want to come back and try to link that to attention tokens and how that works in an attention marketplace.
1: Well, that, maybe it just has is... to
0: be convertible. But anyhow, go ahead. Uh,
1: yeah, no, it, it's interesting to tie it into to the bat. Um, it, my conception, and, and this is of course open to change. Like you know, if 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 um you guys come up with a better uh, version of this, then of course I'm going to change my mind. So this is not fixed in stone. But my my um my original outline was there would be uh, you know largent 1 and largent 2 there would be a permanent version but it would be restricted and the reason why it would exist would be for potential savings but also as a reserve currency <laughs> that countries with no gold could could use the labor the productive labor of their nation's population to build their own reserve currency and that's that's a that idea just would be would be considered Insane, right? That's really out there, you know, but that's to me the logical extension of it. But I also think convertibility is going to happen in a black market or not. So I'm not worried. Go ahead and convert your, your, your largens to whatever you can get your hands on. It's fine with me, you know, I don't, I don't think that's anything that we could restrict anyway. But I think that the point of the climb system is turn your cash, your earnings into real stuff. Buy tools, you know, Um, add a room to your house. buy a goat, make it a female and a male or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so then, um, and so that's the whole point is to turn your labor capital, the, the earnings that you have into capital. And that's, the, that's kind of the way I would describe it now. Um, and so if, it, if you can turn it into Bitcoin or you know, dollars or you know, whatever, you go ahead and it will be gameable. There will be a so. marketplace for it and that's okay. As long as it's a, it's a, you know, no one can gain control of the value of of the climb system, and I think that that is um, that's different. I think it's very hard to control this and be the dominant player when um, it it has its own self enclosed ecosystem. Now, if you want to go outside that ecosystem, you're welcome to, but it does that that barrier is not permeable in both directions. In other words. If you want to take your earnings from Climb and go buy a Bitcoin or a dollar or whatever, um, that's fine. But it doesn't come back in that way. The only way, the only money in Climb is the climb currency itself. And and so you're generating goods and services that can only be traded for climb. Now, so- if you want to take your 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 tool and go earn money payable in, in Ethereum, well, that's fine. You can do that as a side project. We're not we're not here to control you know, how you, you know, use your labor and capital. All we're doing is giving you a protected marketplace where your earnings have value, you know, and...
2: So I I, I, I can imagine a few scenarios in which that would be gamed. And I don't want to get into that into detail other than to say that it's uh, a bold assertion to say that that market would be protected in an era where no market seems to be protected from foreign influence for lack of a better word but really what i meant was financialization right and the way in which external currencies external stores of value can be used to to cross such boundaries to influence perceptions of value inside and outside of markets and that's the point of globalization from a cultural perspective that our perception of value is no longer limited to national boundaries right so people in the soviet union wanted blue jeans They wanted rock and roll right because of the way in which culture is able to transcend the traditional protections or boundaries that a a country puts up around itself and so instead of critiquing how that could be gamed, i'll do so in the context of attention markets because i think attention markets are a fascinating way to think of labor and to think of the value of labor because to bring it full circle back to uh what was the name of tim huang's book there mark
0: Subprime attention crisis.
2: Yes, that part of the crisis in the market is attention and the way in which we value that attention. So when we had our conversation about the ad markets, we talked about the advertiser, we talked about the creator. So let's talk a minute about the user, because the user is a terrible phrase to describe a worker, because really that's what all users are, is that they're attention workers. They bring their attention to the marketplace and they're happy to use their attention for eight, 10, 14, 20 hours a day, right? Think about the pandemic and think about the young people who aren't in school. Think about the people who are stuck at home. Think about all the people working in the attention mines, spending their attention every day, training these algorithms, right? This is part of why TikTok's algorithm is the most effective because it's attracted so not so much not just so many miners but it works those attention miners in the most optimal way by showing them the smallest little clips and gathering the most amount of attention to train their machine learning models but i see this on every platform on twitch on youtube on twitter on facebook on however people are consuming us right here right now on that platform they're on there is people paying attention And so as users, they're working in attention and that attention is commodified. The platform sells that attention to advertisers who spend money to try to get that attention. And we just earlier in the show pointed out that whether they get that attention or not, or what the value of that attention is, is arguably fraudulent, which it is. But nonetheless, we are witnessing, uh, we've already witnessed and we're witnessing their governance attention markets and how those attention markets work what i find fascinating about attention tokens is it's the first means of trying to quantify these attention markets outside of advertising specifically even though they're still tied to advertising as a sense of value because those attention tokens are not just worth the amount of tension being put into those markets they also reflect the amount of advertising demand that's being put into those markets And if you start thinking about media markets, not as media markets in terms of advertising inventory, because that's from the perspective of the advertiser, but media markets from the perspective of the worker, the attention provider, i.e. the viewer, the listener, the user, that's when you get a different, that's when you take the climb system, which has a labor-centric approach to value, and you apply it to social media markets as we know it and that's what i think attention tokens potentially could do so to mark's point i think that's what makes them a fascinating petri dish because they will give us an opportunity both to see the impact of financialization but also the impact of user behavior right and whether user behavior when incentivized by these tokens whether that encourages people not to use ad blockers or whether it encourages people to click on ads or whether it encourages people to engage in even more, like, you know, the the even more engaged activity from an ad. Like, you know, imagine an ad saying, you know, click here, sign this petition, click here, pledge to vote for this issue, click here, mobilize five of your friends to do the same. And the advertiser gets a different price based on whether those people go through those steps. And like, there's like, we underestimate the the way in which attention markets are transforming society as we know it and that they are about to reach a level of uh, maturity and and experimentation and visibility because they're going from the subconscious to the conscious and i'm I'm going on and on so i'll say one last thing because this is obviously an area that i'm like fully into um i've been witnessing this on twitch and, and I, I may have mentioned this in the past, so forgive me if I've said this before, but hopefully I will say it differently. What happens when everybody on the platform is a creator and they're all looking for an audience, right? At some point they have to stop being a creator and go in somebody's audience. So they are even more primed to an attention market where they show up in a marketplace and they go, I would like some viewers for my show, please. And the market says, okay, watch these other people's shows for 10 minutes. And in exchange for watching these other people's shows for 10 minutes, we'll give you a credit that you can spend and we'll deliver an audience to you for that credit. Whether that audience likes you or not, we don't know. But if they do, they will follow you or subscribe you. And maybe they will come and watch you on their own accord in the future but because there's no audience here, we will incentivize you to be an audience by paying you in audience credits that you can then redeem so that you yourself can get an audience. And people do this. They're doing this on a growing scale. And it's the exact same idea as an attention token. So finally, the issue is not whether these currencies and values will interchange, but under what terms and with what protections. And that's where I'm skeptical, Charles, that you would be able to limit people coming back in because there's ways in which they can try to game the system the same way that attention markets are fundamentally corrupted by people trying to game the system. Even if that means they're paying people to watch streams as a way of it's not a bot watching your stream, but it's not a human who cares either. So what's the difference? Anyway, I'm, I'm tripping, but you know we're on to something here and that the network state is built upon the attention economy, right? And those two are kind of, uh, uh, intrinsically linked and the way in which, uh, ne- uh, market attention markets, which are a better way of framing the world of advertising and media is something that is going to grow as a frame to understand the world around us. And Mark, I hope right if they, ahead. I hope if they clip that part of the analysis, they also have the part where I was slagging Ethereum. Please, Mark, go ahead. I,
0: I I didn't realize that basic attention token is pretty close to climb in that sense. Um, yeah, it's from really a labor perspective, it, it's in the ballpark. I don't. I mean, we're not here to hammer out the mechanics of it. I just get this sense if you exchange it in a one-way direction, you've got a problem there because there's no incentive to take the other side of the trade. Or if there is, you're going to have like a reverse Triffin's paradox or something. But when you said
1: two levels,
2: Hold it on, made Do you, perfe- you want to take a moment to explain the – here, wait. What
1: are you doing using I mean, your big school words? Just use normal people words and I'll understand what you're talking about. Okay, you know what you meant by that? Charles, what's Triffin's par- paradox? Triffin's paradox is um, when you create a currency in a domestic economy, like a national currency, uh, then it, it plays two roles. It has a domestic role in the domestic economy where people value it and use it, but it also has an international role. And there's an intrinsic conflict between those two. You can never sort it, uh, never, never make those align. Yeah, they might align yeah, briefly. Yeah. But so that's why I suggested there were two, two, two kinds of currency in the climb system. One would be in, an, in available for the international market. And the other one would be just within the system. But I, I, my final, I know we're kind of running up on our time limits. But so I'm just, Mark, I'm just going to interject my last comment, yeah, which ahead. was how the climb system would protect itself. Number one, it's scale, right? It, 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 if if all you can do is steal oh. the labor of one person, it's like, mm. I'm sorry, it's just not very lucrative. The other model is, you know, in the original proto-capitalism described by um, Fernand Braudel in his, his trilogy about early capitalism and um, Europe, capitalism from the 15th to the 17th century, which – It's like well over a thousand pages for all three volumes, but I highly recommend it if you really want to understand capitalism on the ground floor, you know, anyways, they had these big trading fairs, right? And this was still in the feudal era. So there was no king that controlled everything. So these trading fairs were like huge and vast and they were the big money makers and where you could go and sell your goat or you, you know, whatever you had. And so um, they were often sponsored by monasteries, which were, a, uh, if you want to call it, you know, a, a power um, that was both secular and spiritual, but um, so the monks would basically beat the crap out of you if you tried to cheat the the fair, if you tried to cheat anybody in the, in the system. Uh, because, you know, you paid your fee, you followed the rules, and if you didn't, um, you were shunned, you were rejected, and your opportunity to make money was lost, you know? So, I think shunning is a, is a, is an underestimated thing here. You know, that if you're caught cheating in climb, you're out. We don't care what happens to you, whatever. We don't care. You're not allowed in again. And so maybe after a year or two of of shunning, you know, just like, you know, human shunning, you know, there may be a time period of your punishment. Or maybe you get branded. And then but you, come back but you then. guys
2: are, are missing the paradox here. And, and I don't want to open up this can of worms today, but I got to open it. So I flag it for the future. And that's the paradox of identity, right? Like either on the one hand, you know, you've got a fixable identity, right? Where, you know, it's a surveillance society where you have a permanent record and everything's back to you. So once you're shunned, that's it, you're done. Versus the digital society we currently have, which is you just make a new self. Oh, you got banned from the platform? All right, new email address, new username. (laughs) Ha ha, I'm back, suckers! Right? And one could argue we need nuance. We need a middle ground where it's, you know, not the totalitarian state where everything you do is trash. your chance. And, you know, (laughs) not the alternative where... So, again, I... I, it's a can of worms. I don't want to get into today, but I, I, I think it, it, it raises how this blockchain stuff, how a lot of this cryptocurrency stuff is very political and comes with all sorts of political implications that either we as the three of us or we as a society owe it to ourselves to discuss and get into and, and to dig deeper into.
0: Well, because if blockchains and cryptocurrencies become the next form of economic value, like money. They become the next money. And my central tenet, well, not mine, but the people who say this, I tend to agree with that whoever controls the monetary system controls society. That makes it by definition political. So right. the Ethereum purists, of, which is not representative of the entire community, you know, the ones who think that it's going to be complete, governance by algo are basically ceding their 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 political autonomy to robots, which is a non starter for many well, people, but, including myself.
2: But hold on, let me clarify. They're ceding their political authority to the people who control the robots. This is Wizard of Oz, right? Yes, that's because we agree that yeah. the robots have no capacity it's right. whoever programs the robots, whoever has root access on the machine that the robots run. Well, that's who ultimately has the power.
0: We could that we could have a how many angels can dance on the head of a pin argument about that because they they I would say the rebuttal to that would be no we create the smart contract and once we launch the smart contract even we can't access it. So it's
2: you could but you then can make they that would argument be, they would be themselves the governors because they launched the smart contract or right. their subconscious would be the governors because yeah. it wouldn't be something they could actually negotiate with. It's something that once it's out there, Oh right. I didn't know that I meant that. Oh right. my God. What do I do?
0: It's a but mistake. I'm just
2: saying it's, it's an remember onion that? that the more you mm. unpeel it, the stinkier it gets. Do
0: you remember that men at work song about a nuclear apocalypse? Cause the guy put his cigar out on the red button. It's a mistake. Yeah. Um, You'd have to engineer a fifty-one percent attack on your on yourself, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, we launched these smart contracts, and now we're like, we're all screwed, and so we've got to somehow marshal. A, you could have a great sci-fi movie out of that. But it's still
2: and, my point is it's still governance, just bad governance.
0: Well, that's what I tell people who think that we can achieve this idealistic network state through pure algos. It's like you're never going to get rid of governance.
2: Yeah.
0: Like by definition, you have governance. So. You have to aspire to come up with a more participatory, democratic, egalitarian governance structure that fits the technology not to get not to. It's that it's that it's that technocratic obsession of taking all humanity out of the equation. And we just yeah. turn yeah. ourselves into vegetables then all our problems Gee, will be solved. That is true, f- but it won't be a lot of fun.
2: This is why I think you're onto something brilliant here, and this is a good opportunity for us to end the show. Because if I'm saying that you're brilliant, that is usually <laughs> yes. an excellent moment to end the show. <laughs> right, but, right but right to be down. clear, okay. but to be clear, just to articulate what it is that you're doing that makes it so brilliant: your critique of transhumanism, your critique of the church of the algorithm, is it, it be what gives you credibility in making this critique, what makes the critique so powerful is you're a libertarian critiquing the 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 religion of libertarianism, right? That's you're not the arguing, religion of
0: libertarianism though.
2: But let me finish, right? From an outsider's perspective, it kind of is. That mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're saying, look, I too don't want government. I too don't want an overbearing state, but I'm a realist who says there's gonna be one so let us have it as minimalist as possible. Let us have it as free as possible. Let us have it adhere to the qualities of libertarianism rather than some utopian ideal of libertarianism because you recognize that in trying to reach the utopian you trip and faceplant and and achieve dystopian. Yeah. And that I mean, it's a it's a better thing to take your ideals but work with the reality we got to try to achieve them through peaceful means or through, you know, negotiated means.
0: Yeah. Nobody said, nobody said a smart contract society is going to not result in big government. So do you want big government run by a bunch of incompetent career politicians, or do you want a big government run by a bunch of mindless algos, which is worse? Like I don't want either. Anyhow, Charles, we've been elbowing you out of the picture.
1: No, I, I, I totally agree with both of your points. Utopian perfectionism is a disaster in, yeah. in, in progress. And so we, we need to say humans are flawed, life is you know, changeable, and we want small-scale, adaptive, you know, where the power is pushed down to the lowest possible level. But I, my last comment is I'm a big fan of mad monks and shunning.
2: I mean, we've avoided on this show getting too deep into cancel culture, but I, I kind of feel that when we talk about mad monks and shunning, we are getting into cancel culture. So we'll have to discuss it on on a, a future episode. But I I will end because the other thing we didn't really talk about today that I do anticipate that we are going to be compelled to talk about in two weeks, and I hope I'm wrong about this, is the pandemic. Right. In that I think the pandemic is about to take a a terrible turn in the next 14 days. You know, so catastrophic that it that I will be able to, in my own guilt, gloat at my prediction here again, hoping that I'm wrong, hoping that I'm completely off. But I do think that there's a correlation between the pandemic and utopianism and, you know, because people are living in a dystopia, so they naturally conjure utopia. So they naturally desire utopia, and I think that that's the danger. That any utopianism is 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 bad. It's a dangerous act. That we need to deal with the unpleasantness of the ple- of the present. We need to deal with the challenges of the present, the same way that we need to deal with the opportunities that the technology of the present affords us, and we need to deal with the opportunities that the uh you know the culture the culture of freedom of the present affords us. And so I I think for me that's my kind of. I was thinking about it earlier today. My anti-futurism—that maybe I rebrand myself instead of calling myself a futurist, I call myself an anti-futurist, right? As a, a kind of oxy, a professional oxymoron. But I'm not sure too. I'm not sure enough people would appreciate that.
1: So no, but I, I think that's the way to go. That is yes. the excellent rebranding.
2: Well, maybe right? only here in the access of easy. It'll <laughs> be my alter ego that I, I get to explore with the two of you. Anyways, but fun.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for joining us, everyone. Like us on Stitcher, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts. Visit us at AccessOfMusic.com, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.